Would you open your Bibles now once again, and perhaps for the last time uh, uh, in this series, to the fifth chapter, according to Matthew. We're going to be reading this morning, Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 38, and reading to the end of the chapter, to verse, through verse 48. And let's listen now to the inspired word of God. Jesus is still speaking. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, Take away your tunic. Let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give, give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And here ends our reading from God's perfect word. We're continuing our series this morning on the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, the gospel according to Matthew. We have listened as Jesus has clarified the original and pure meaning of the of various of the Tenth Commandments. We've seen Jesus expound for us the meaning of the Sixth and the Seventh and the Third and the Ninth Commandments. And as we're uh, continuing our study this morning, G Jesus turns to, I think, what we would just describe as a, a summary now of the commandments, not one commandment in particular of the Ten, but the summary of the Ten Commandments and especially of what we call the Second Table of the Ten Commandments. Remember when Jesus was uh, questioned uh, as a rabbi, uh, there was a lot of discussion in Jesus' day as to what is the first or the great commandment? What is the greatest of all the commandments? Remember Jesus was asked that question, and remember he uh, gave a twofold answer. 
First of all, he said, the great, the first and greatest of the commandments is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. When he says the first commandment there, he's talking about what we would normally call the first table or the first tablet uh, of the commandments. The first four commandments which are addressed particularly to our relationship to God and uh, his worship and his name and his day. But then Jesus went on and he said, and the second is like it. The second great commandment. What's that? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And by that second commandment, I take it that he means what we call the second tablet or the second table uh, of the commandments, commandments 5 to 10, which have to do with our relationship with one another, which Jesus summarizes as to love thy neighbor as thyself. I want you to notice that, though. See, what is the second table about? What are commandments 5 to 10, the second tablet? What are they about? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 5, he writes, Now the purpose of the commandment is love. Okay. The world and worldly churches, too, the world wants you to think that there's a division between commandments and love, between law and love. But according to Jesus, they come together. That, as a matter of fact, the only way to truly love is to keep the commandments. So Paul says, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. See, notice how... The commandment not only teaches you how to love, but how to do it from a pure heart. It's a spiritual business. It's not an outside legalistic business. The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and from sincere faith. Those things all go together. Okay? That's, that's the purpose of, Paul says, the commandment. We would say that's the purpose of the of the Ten Commandments, all the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments are just the summary. It's a, it, it's a, well, it'd be an understatement to say a brilliant summary of all morality is contained in <laughs> Ten Commandments. It's amazing uh, when you uh, think of it, but that's the purpose of the commandments. And so what Jesus is turning to now, having talked about various particulars of the commandments, particularly uh, those commandments which the traditions of the Jews of the time, the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees had so much perverted, and we've studied through uh, all of that. Now he turns and he summarizes, as it were, the, uh, the, the, oh, the, the big meaning. What's the big picture about commandments 5 through 10, the second tablet of the commandments? I hope Perhaps you will notice also, as we go through here, um, Jesus is also summarizing something else. Whether he was doing it consciously or not, I, I don't know. I think there are enough verbal correspondences that it might be. But Jesus is very much talking about the same thing 
that we read in our psalm this morning, Psalm 37. So I'll, give you, I'll encourage you to take a look at that again this afternoon in light of the sermon, in light of the things that Jesus says here, and see if you don't see just connection after connection after connection about how to love. And remember how that psalm starts. Do not fret thyself. Because our tendency is to be very fretful, to be very upset. You know, that hasn't gone away. We live in an age of fretfulness. You might just call it an age of hatred, where people just hate one another. They talk with hatred. They act with hatred. You know, mass killings, wars, based on nothing but hatred. And it's really easy for us to slide into that as well. So we need to, uh, to hear that too. And so Jesus uh, turns to that very pressing question for, our, for all of us. How is it then that we are to love our neighbor as ourself, to love as God has called us to love? You'll notice that Jesus concludes this uh, one part, the first part of his sermon uh, on the mount with these very uh, remarkable words. Look at verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your heavenly Father, your Father in heaven, is uh, perfect. Uh, out of context, and there is a way in which this would be true, it is, a, it is a, a, a general principle, but it's an extrapolation from this to say, yes, uh, God's overall requirement for us is that we be perfect. And that's true. But Jesus gives it in the context of love. And so what he's particularly saying in the 48th verse is, you shall love perfectly, even as your Father in heaven loves perfectly. Okay? And we'll see that, I hope, as we, as we uh, study through uh, these uh, verses here this morning. How is it then that we can perfect? The word perfect... Uh, in the, in the original language, has this idea of, of maturity especially. I think that's probably your best word. How should we or how can we mature in our love? How can we grow? How can we be complete in our love? It's easy to love this person or that person, but how can we com- complete or perfect or mature or grow in our love to, to love according to the goal of how God loves, how God loves in this world. So the theme then is perfect love. First of all, I want you to notice that perfect love is long-suffering. Perfect love is long-suffering. I'm going to read all the way from verse 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, you gotta you gotta think about the words and what they mean now. If anyone wants to sue you, if anyone wants to sue you, and take away your tunic, this is not a thief down the alley. Okay, if someone wants to sue you, 
and take away your tunic. Let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And give to him who asks. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Perfect love is, first of all, long-suffering love. Perfect love, Jesus is saying, does not return evil for evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's a quotation. Okay? That's a quotation from Old Testament civil law. Okay? We usually refer to it as the lex talionis. Lex is the Latin word for law, and talionis, T-A-L-I-O-N-I-S, means of talion, of talion. We'll talk about a little bit more uh, exactly what that means, but we call it the, the lex talionis or the law of talion. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, you've probably heard this quotation from the Bible quoted from time to time by all kinds of people. And most of them don't like it. Most of them say it's hateful. It's vengeful. It's vengeful to, to punish according to the crime. We must be merciful, Right? And so they look at the, the law of Talion, which the word uh, talio uh, in Latin means, uh, comes from the Latin word talus, which means um, just the same as. It means the same as. Okay? And according to most people, for crime to be punished, just the, for a punishment of the crime to be just the same as the crime, ha! Oh, See, that's vengeful, but that's exactly what it's not. That is precisely what it is not. Moses is the one who has reported an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Moses is the one who has ordered the judges of Israel to judge according to the law of Talion, and he's done it not once, but three times. Okay. I'll give you an example uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Two men have a quarrel there, and they are summoned to appear before the magistrates, or the judges, they're called, who are usually, you remember this, the Old Testament often talks about the judges in the gate. That's where the elders of the city sat to judge the people, in the gate, Okay, that prominent place, in other words, uh, in the town. So these two men have a very serious quarrel, apparently, and they are summoned to appear before the judges in the gate, and testimony is taken, it's received, and a judgment is made. But a question comes up about one or more of the witnesses, whether that witness has lied under oath before the judges whether he has, what we would say, committed perjury. Okay? And this is what you read in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And remember, God said it. And the judges, you got to, so keep a hold of that now, it's talking about the judges. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. This has to do with this perjury. Okay? The judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed... 
If the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. In other words, if the, if the punishment for the crime would be death, then, then he's going to be killed. He tried to get an innocent man killed, you see. Or he tried to steal a house or cattle or land. The lex talionis, okay. So he's, God says, you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. Now listen for the reasons of the lex talionis. Thus, you shall put away the evil from among you. you uh, it was quite popular when I was in college back in the, uh, in the 60s uh, to, uh, to uh, talk about uh, this idea. It was considered to be uh, so outmoded. You can't legislate morality. Well, what can you legislate? Immorality? You see, well, the death penalty doesn't, doesn't lower the crime rate. Well, it does by one person. Does it deter others? You shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. Thus, you shall put away the evil from among you, and those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. God says it, it deters, and God is the Lord of the heart. There's nobody who thinks something that God is not sovereign over. And if God says that the lex talionis, okay, the law of, of the punishment being equal to the crime, okay, that it deters not only the criminal, but other people who see it and recognize that this will happen to them if they commit the same kind of a crime, you see. That's what God says, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. <gasps> now, it's amazing that God would say that, and it is amazing. It gives you a little bit of goosebumps, I think, doesn't it? God says that. You your eye shall not pity. And then he goes on and he says the famous words. Okay. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Deuteronomy chapter 19 beginning with verse 18. The law of Talion or the law of equal punishment is also uh, the, the, virtually the same words, just in case you want to look it up, occurs also in Exodus chapter 21, beginning with verse 24, and in Leviticus chapter 24, uh, in verse 20. But what I want you to notice about this is that this is occurring in a civil court. It's in the gate, and it's the judges who are addressed, and the judges shall make inquiry. This is not a, a lynching. This is not a mob scene. Okay? This is not personal vindictiveness. This is a court of law. And in that court of law, in that civil court, okay, 
the judge is here, and they decide the case. And it's the judges who in these verses in Deuteronomy 19, it's the judges who are exhorted by God to the lex talionis, to perfect justice. Okay? They are not to pity the guilty. They're not to do that. They are not to ignore civil wrongdoing. They're not allowed to ignore crime. Okay. But to be scrupulously just in assigning punishment for convicted crime. Eye for an eye, no more and no less. So in other words, what the law of Talion in the Bible prescribes is that in a court of law, there must not be leniency. In leniency, you make the innocent suffer for the sake of the guilty. The opposite of, of justice isn't mercy, it's injustice. I think it's easy to, to see that kind of thing. You can think of a judge in a courtroom... I know this is not according to the rules uh, that pertain today, but I'm just trying to simplify and give you the case. If there was a judge in a courtroom and uh, there was a, a person who has uh, been apprehended by the authorities and brought to trial for murder, and he has murdered, and I'll try to make it as, as poignant as I can, he's murdered your child, perhaps tortured that child first. And the judge says... Even after the person's been convicted, there's no doubt about it. And the judge says, but I will have mercy on you. I, I know you had a rough, you had a rough background, and, and, the, and the week before you did this, you were fired from your job, and so I'm going to let you go with a warning or a slap, whatever it would be. And what does that do to the parents? You see how leniency in a court is injustice against the innocent for the sake of leniency for the wicked, for the guilty. And so God says, you're not to do that. You're not to do that. This is not a matter of viciousness. That's the way it's seen in Hollywood and, you know, Virtually all, I suppose, the professors in, in our universities today would call it barbaric. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But it's not viciousness. When God said to Moses to tell the judges that this is what God says, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, he was actually limiting what a judge could do. He says, an eye, but only for an eye. No more than an eye. A tooth for a tooth, but no more than tooth for tooth. Hand for hand, but certainly not a hand for a loaf of bread stolen. And there have been societies that have practiced exactly that. Okay. It limited viciousness. It's not revengeful. It's the exact opposite of that. It's withholding revenge. That's the meaning 
of the Lex Talionis. The Lex Talionis, the, the law of Talion, is the law of perfect justice. It is the duty of judges according to the Bible. Okay? The church has no authority over the government. All we can do is exhort those in, governant, in government to do what is right, and what is right is what's in the scripture. Okay? But it is the duty of judges, of the, it's the duty of the whole state, it's the duty of civil, wa- civil law. As the apostle himself says, he bears the sword not in vain. God has given him the sword to use it. And he'll be judged whether he does or not. If he cuts off a hand for the sake of a loaf of bread, he'll be judged for that. But if he fails to give perfect justice to the one who has done something so awful as cut off somebody else's hand, a judge will be called to judgment for that too. You see? The criminal should be judged according to the law of Talion. He should be punished with exact equity, corresponding exactly to the crime. I don't know if you've ever heard of the uh, musical, the Gilbert and Sullivan musical, The Mikado, okay, where it makes fun of the law of Italian. Okay, Let the punishment fit the crime. And oh, how people laugh and mock. How, what I th- see how stupid that man is? Now, and so they make the person who, the, uh, uh, who sings that song and who is uh, the magistrate in this, they make him out to be an idiot. Well, well, it's easy to write into a story that somebody's an idiot. But you haven't proven that the punishment should not fit the crime. What do you want to say? In our perfect society, punishment never fits the crime. Is that what you want to say? Those are the only two choices. The punishment either fits the crime or it doesn't fit the crime. And the Bible says the punishment ought to fit the crime. And in the state of Israel, which was a theocracy at that time, okay, God ruled and he said, this is the constitutional law for judges. And this is what they must do. That was the rule for judges and civil government. And I believe the principle is there for all governments everywhere. Like I said, what do you want to say? The punishment should not fit the crime? Or that it should fit the crime? But having recognized that, that that law of Talion was given to the judges of Israel and the principle is given to us even today, yet it was never, ever, ever, not in the Old Testament, not any place in the Bible, the law of Talion was never intended as a rule for daily life. Husbands and wives are not to get even with one another. Isn't that easy to to understand? This is a rule for civil law, for crime, but not for the non-criminal incidences that fill our lives and often our homes and even our families. 
that's, that's where the ancient tradition of the Jews had gone wrong. See, the legalists had said, the Bible says, quote the Bible for their purpose, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, therefore, look out, here I come. Okay? You, you said a bad thing to me, now I'm going to say a bad thing to you. So on and so forth, okay? The rule for normal personal relationships was different. And it always was. Jesus isn't changing the law of Talion. He's talking about the personal relationships and the misinterpretation given by the scribes and Pharisees. Micah said the same thing that Jesus says. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, okay, give persons their due. Give them what you owe them. To do justly, to love mercy, to go beyond, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It was always true in the Bible that the law of Talion, yes, that's for the judges and it's important for society. But you cannot live your life based on civil law in every relationship at all times. I'm talking about non-criminal activities. Micah 6.8, but you probably already know that. Moses, the same one who recorded the law of Talion for us, said the same thing. Moses wrote, If you meet your enemies, ox, or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying under its burden, it's fallen down, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. You are to love your enemy. Okay. He's not talking about going into uh, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the place where the criminals who are going to be executed for murder and saying we're going to let them go. That's not... That's not what Moses is saying. Okay? He's saying that in terms of our daily relationships, there's people who love you and there are people who hate you and your tendency is to fret, Psalm 37. Your tendency is to fret, but don't fret. God's going to take care of it. And he promises, as Jesus, as both Psalm 37 says and as the Beatitude says, that the meek will inherit the earth. You see, Solomon said the same thing. Proverbs 25, verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. It's a perversion of the New Testament. To look at the verses like the ones we have, before us right now and say, well, see, Old Testament was based on this, this, this uh, law and this uh, hatred and vengeance. And the New Testament, Jesus fixed it up. He canceled Moses, which is to say he canceled God. But Jesus didn't cancel God. The error 
is not the law of Talion. The error is applying the law of Talion to your daily conversations and daily activities with other persons. The Old Testament as well as the New Testament says you must do the right thing. You must love even your enemy. And that's exactly what Jesus declares in beginning with verse 39. I know those, those uh, seem uh, like uh, terribly complex and they make you wonder what to think. And uh, great minds like Tolstoy and a whole lot of uh, contempor- more contemporary people uh, look at these and uh, they say, well, you know, they become what we call pacifists. Look at verse 39 and forward again. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever, and I want you to remember the words I'll emphasize, I'm, not, not because I'm telling you which of God's words are most important, but because I'm trying to get you to see the connections I'm, I'm uh, trying to make here. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, He hasn't stabbed you. He hasn't snuck into your house and stolen it. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Jesus is not speaking against civil law and civil order. He's talking about personal relationships here. Reminding uh, us and giving some rather, uh, what will we say, uh, colorful uh, examples of how personal relationships are not to be conducted like civil law, like criminal law. No marriage will will succeed if you do that. You know that. All of you who are married, you know that. Your marriage wouldn't succeed. Okay. But rather, our normal, non-criminal, daily relationships have to be characterized by long-suffering love. And so in verse 39, a person receives a slap. The, uh, the Greek word is even more technical than the English word. It's not a punch. It's a slap. It's not somebody stabbing you. It's not somebody pulling a gun on you. Okay? This is a person who has insulted you. Okay? And he's saying, you don't have to retaliate. There's the word talion. Retaliate. You don't need to retaliate. You don't need to do the law of talion. Okay? Whether it's a physical blow or whether it's a verbal blow, or some other kind of insult. We're all insulted all the time. Personally, I think it's because we think too much of ourselves. Okay. A buddy of mine uh, from seminary, he's deceased for some years now. Uh, I remember in seminary, he uh, once made a comment in a, quote, practice sermon. If you are capable of being offended, you don't know the depth of your sin. And the professor who was liberal after the practice sermon, said, what in the world are you talking about? 
Well, and see, we evangelical, we conservative students, we knew that we were going to be judged by one another, so we all took the same section of that course, so we'd all be together. Uh, and the, the prof said, that doesn't make any sense at all. If you are capable of being offended, you don't know the depth of your sin. You don't know what you, as my, one of my roommates used to say, you want what you deserve. <laughs> the prof couldn't get it. And I think, I think he was doubly amazed when he, he said, all right, now listen. It was, I don't know, 35 students or so in the class. How, how, does that make sense to any of you? We're all, <laughs> all 35 of us. <laughs> put our, <laughs> it makes perfect sense to us. But the prof was puzzled uh, anyway. But you get the idea. Okay. Our love has to be characterized by patience with those who offend us. Look at verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. I've been already emphasizing that to you. He's, he hasn't stolen it from you in a, in a criminal sense. Okay, I mean, we've been talking about this distinction. Okay. He hasn't stolen it from you. He's suing you. He's taking you to a court of law where hopefully you will receive a just judgment. And if not, fret not thyself. Fret not thyself. You're going to be treated badly in this world. But nothing, no matter how bad something happens to a Christian in this world, no matter how bad it is, it's not nearly as bad as he deserves. I mean, what do you deserve? I deserve hell. Nobody has ever given me anything as bad as hell, and you either. And so Jesus is just reminding us, exercise self-control. You don't have to fly on the hand, off the handle on the way to the court and refuse to go. You humble yourself before Caesar, and you go and you accept Caesar's judgment, even if it's unjust. Because Caesar is not always just. Okay? But, so if he goes and he, he sues you for uh, uh, your, uh, your um, tunic, and the judge doesn't do an eye for an eye, he, he does a cloak for a tunic, and a cloak was worth a whole lot more. You're going to have to humble yourself under that. You see that? Calm, self-control, and humility. By generosity, verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. By ge our love should be characterized by generosity. We, we have, a, we have a, 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 a phrase in English, and probably most languages, that is taken right from this, to go the extra mile with someone to doing more than is required, okay? To do justly and to love mercy. Now, this uh, idea here in verse 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too, was uh, whether Jesus had this in mind, I don't think there's any way of telling, but we do know that in Jesus' day, there was exactly that sort of thing happening. It was part of the Roman military law. If a soldier was on duty and he was traveling, he had a right to conscript, to conscript uh, what's the other word for that? To, uh, uh, 
compel, yeah, uh, civilian help and to go a mile. That was his right as a soldier to force you to help him do whatever it was was necessary to go one mile. We have example of that, of course, in the... We have examples of all these things, I suppose, in the gospel stories. Jesus, of course, was slapped and didn't open his mouth. And uh, to, to, he didn't open his mouth to complain. He opened his mouth to make clear that he uh, you know, does not deserve to be slapped. Okay. But Simon of Cyrene, helping, he was conscripted uh, by the Roman soldiers to help carry Jesus across. And what a blessing it was for Simon of Cyrene, who may very well have become an important teacher in the church at Antioch. But that's a different story. But these, uh, the Roman soldiers had the civil authority to require this kind of help. And a Christian person will not only submit himself to that civil authority, but he will do it from the heart. That's the key. He will do it from the heart. He will do it truly willingly. You see, not doing the least, but doing the most, even if it seems unfair. So Jesus is very far from teaching pacifism. Pacifism is the philosophy that all violence is wrong. Now, you only have to read the Bible to see that's not true. Okay? This is not appropriate. Jesus isn't even talking about that. This is not a prohibition of war. It's not a prohibition of military service. It's not a prohibition of self-defense. As I've been laboring to emphasize, you weren't stabbed by this man. You were offended by him. You were insulted. He slapped you. He didn't slug you. Okay. But there's a biblical duty to defend yourself against crime and to defend your family and to defend any innocent. That's a duty. Much less a sin. It's a duty. If somebody's being held up to come to their rescue if you're able. It's your duty to do that, to love them. Jesus isn't talking about crime. Jesus is talking about the offenses that we receive from individuals and governments and so on and so forth that our lives are full of. These verses are rather a reminder that life is full of conflicts and we have enemies on the right and on the left, even as we have friends. And when a person slights us, insults us, treats us badly, okay, not when he punches us, shoots us, burns down our house, commits crimes, not, Jesus, just read words. He's not talking about that. The vocation of the Christian is to love with long suffering, to suffer long, to put up with it long. Long suffering sometimes is translated patience. Long suffering, okay? Even those who have treated us badly and not to seek revenge or retaliation. See, not to seek the justice of a civil court 
in every little event of our lives. Perfect loves, love begins with the thoughtful practice of the virtue of long-suffering. Paul later on would write, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God has forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32. Okay. Love is, first of all, long-suffering by definition. It's forgiving for a long time. Patient. Secondly, I want you to notice that perfect love is not only long-suffering, it is extended even to our enemies, Jesus says in verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said. There's that, there's that phrase again now. You have heard that it was written. No, 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 no. You have heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Perfect love is extended even to our enemies. Okay. Now, what Jesus is doing here, I believe, is he's, he's really just more emphasizing uh, and uh, kind of repeating this, the typical Jewish way of teaching. You repeat things and build, build on them. What he's, all of what he's going to say here is already contained in principle in what he's already said. But, because he knows we have a hard time to hear it, he's going to unpack it for us a little bit more here. He begins in the 43rd verse, you have heard that it was said, quote, uh, in my Bible, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, unquote. Well, as long as that quote is understood as what was said, because this is another traditional uh, ancient Jewish perversion of Old Testament law. Okay. It is true that the Old Testament says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus wasn't the first one to say that. Moses, the lawgiver, was the first one to say that. Leviticus 19, 18. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But there is absolutely no such Old Testament verse as thou shalt hate thine enemy. <laughs> there is no such verse in the Old Testament. Well, it's amazing, I know. Okay. Even today, many Bibles, maybe most Bibles, I don't know, Bibles that come with footnotes, cross-references. The Bible that I'm holding in my uh, hand here, okay, one of the Nelson preaching uh, Bibles is uh, one of them. And it gives Old Testament references which at first glance appear to justify love your neighbor but hate your enemy. I remember this was before the uh, the Reformation. You know, a very good Bible. The footnotes are, you know, kind of minimal, but the intros are wonderful in that Bible. Uh, but uh, but before uh, R.C. was editing Bibles, he wrote a book, short little book. I don't know, 100, 200 pages or something. Oh, I don't know, quite a long time ago. And the title of the book was based, it was sort of bouncing off a little bit, J.I. Packer's Loving God. And uh, so Sproul wrote a number of books bouncing off of that, Pleasing God, for example. But he wrote a book called Knowing Scripture, Knowing God, Knowing Scripture. 
And if memory serves, and I'm getting to the age where you do have to worry about it a little bit, um, but I believe in that book, R.C. says, I don't like Bibles with footnotes and cross-references because they're not part of the Bible. And people read them. I've certainly had this happen many a time through the years of my ministry where people come up and say something that's really pretty much off the wall and say, well, my footnote says. I've had a person once say to me, you know, this is, it was a Moody Bible he had. This is not against Moody Bible Institute at all. He, something I certainly disagreed with, but he said, my Moody Bible here says this. Now, do you agree with that or not? And I said, no. And that really didn't help the conversation, I guess. But anyway, R.C. was making the point that people really do get the idea that the cross-references in your Bibles settle your theological questions instead of that more difficult tool of thinking. <laughs> okay, of thinking. So... My Bible actually has references, and, and they're very famous and worthwhile. I use it all the time. It's just be careful, that's all. The TSK, the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, perhaps you've uh, seen that. It's, a, it's, it's all these cross-references for just about every verse. Okay, It's good, but be careful, because it has a handful of verses too that seem, on the surface of it, to justify it's okay to hate your enemy. But there is no such quote in the Old Testament, and that is an interpretation, and it's an incorrect one, which is what Jesus says when he says, you have heard it said, but I say. He's saying that's wrong to take that approach. Okay. Why did the scribes and the Pharisees, the old rabbis, why did they take that interpretation? Where did they get that from? Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Where did you get that from? The question is often uh, raised today. If you, you know, watch, uh, uh, you know, the YouTube channel for uh, Ligonera Ministries, you'll see the question come up from uh, time to time. The question is often raised in terms of the so-called imprecatory psalms. Okay, imprecatory, I-M-P-R-E. C-A-T-O-R-Y, the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms are psalms which particularly pronounce hatred and destruction and doom on the wicked, and sometimes in quite bloody terms. If you're a psalm reader, you'll know that. And you'll probably look at them and you say, hmm, okay, wonder what I, should we pray? I mean, I go to a Covenanter church, and we only sing psalms. So we sing lots of psalms. When they sing that psalm, should I mean, should we say that? Should we say that? Okay, it's an interesting question. You know, if you're a thoughtful person, you know you want to avoid what my Old Testament prof, when he read verse from the Old Testament and said it's barbaric, you might not like what it seems like it means, but. I don't know, I'd be, when the Lord Jesus says to me, why didn't you do that? I don't think I'd want to say because it was barbaric. <laughs> okay. 
So, but it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a valid question. Should we pray? Should we mean? Should we take to ourselves the imprecatory psalms? Okay. I believe C.S. Lewis just out and out said no. You shouldn't, Christians are not supposed to pray that. He, he, he kind of fell to dispensationalism there. He was, he was not a theologian and would remind you from time to time, and he was accurate. He was, he was right. He was not a theologian. He made a lot of theological mistakes. He was a brilliant man, a wonderful man, and a helpful man, especially in apologetics, but he was not, he was not a skilled theologian. And uh, if I remember right, I don't remember which of his books. I've read a number of them. Uh, he says he, he recommends that Christians not read and pray those psalms. Well, even more than that, I can remember the day it actually happened to me. Two people in a church I was pastoring come up to me, a husband and a wife, and they said, can we pray these psalms against my boss? Can I substitute his name? And the correct answer to the question, should you pray the imprecatory psalms, may seem at first glance to you contradictory, but I hope it isn't. First of all, no, you may not substitute your boss's name. That is directly contradictory to what Jesus is teaching here. Directly contradictory to what Jesus is teaching. You are not to be vengeful. Okay. No matter how much you think the person may have harmed you, if you committed a crime, well, you call the police. You deal with it. But your boss just treats you bad. I don't know what it was the boss did that they decided they wanted to make sure he went to hell or something. I don't know. Okay. That attitude, that kind of action, okay, is what Jesus is condemning here. Well, the question could be asked, well, then why can't I? David's praying them, and we're told, sing psalms. We're told to do that. It's the inspired word of God. Yes, I believe we are required to use the psalms in worship, and that justifies every single one of them. Okay. But notice this. The sinners condemned in the Psalms have sinned against God. They haven't sinned against you, not ultimately. You know, David committed adultery and murder and lied for who knows how long about it. And yet he prays against thee, thee only, have I done this evil in thy sight. Thee and thee only. What's he mean by that? Did he sin against Bathsheba? Of course he did. He's the king. I mean, this is worse than the Lewinsky business. He's the king. No, no right to treat her that way. You know, let alone her husband, of course. Okay. Notice what David says against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Psalm 51.4, but you probably already know that. Okay. 
See, my, my enemies, David is saying, and we should say with him, my enemies have sinned. Okay, yeah, they sinned against me. But they sinned against God. And when you stop and consider those two things, God, why is it a sin? Because God is infinitely worthy. And I am utterly unworthy. I am worthy of only one thing, and I hope God doesn't give it to me. You see that? In that sense, sin is against God. And the imprecatory psalms are against those who have sinned against God. Furthermore, I'll point out to you in terms of substituting your boss's name. How do you know that today's sinner is not tomorrow's saint? Would you pray asking God to damn the elect? Would you risk doing that? No. See, the Psalms are against the, the quintessentially wicked. Those ones whom you and I can't tell in this life. God knows. And so stick with the words of the Psalm. And do pray them. And do mean them. Because the imprecatory Psalms, you know, they're about approving of God's justice. And woe unto that person who professes to be a Christian and does not approve of God's justice. I'll give you an example. Psalm 139, you know that psalm. I pick a psalm that you're pretty familiar with. Psalm 139, beginning with verse 19. Here's an, uh, an imprecation in that psalm. Oh, I'll, uh, uh, I have my verse written out here in the New King James. I'll change it to Old King James to, to the extent that I can, so you'll remember who the these and thous are. Oh, that thou wouldst slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you against thee wickedly. Thine enemies take thy name in vain. You see how the psalm is about those men who are wicked toward God, not toward me. Thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Yeah, you better. Jonathan Edwards was convinced that he was not converted until he approved of hell, the doctrine of hell. Okay. If you don't approve of the doctrine of hell, how, what sense would it make to be redeemed from hell? Redeemed from nothing or what? Do I not loathe those that, who rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. Ah, there it is. You can see how the ancient tradition of the scribes and Pharisees, do I not hate them with perfect hatred? I notice it's perfect hatred. That ought to be a hint. Perfect doesn't mean bloodthirsty. <laughs> perfect means correct, perfect, mature hatred. I count them mine enemies. That's Psalm 139, verses 19 to 22. We ought to, we ought to pray these words. And I have us pray them on Sunday morning, and I hope you're joining in with us when we pray these words from God's 
words, but we need to pray them from God's perspective. And a lot of the Psalms are like that. That's part of the wonder of the Psalms, learning how to read them from God's perspective. What does he mean by them? Okay. But not to read them against you know, those whose hearts we think we can read or we presume to read and whose future we do not know. Okay. But against those whom God judges to be his enemies. May he scatter them. May he destroy them. He can destroy them two different ways, just like Nineveh could be destroyed. Yet, however many days it was, and this city shall be destroyed. They were destroyed, you know. They were destroyed by repenting. And they became new persons in that. You see that? It can be destroyed more than one way. Okay? We pray that God will indeed punish eternally those who have and will finally and relentlessly refuse to repent. Of course. And we are affirming in those imprecatory psalms, and it's important to do so. Okay? We don't need to be mamsy-pamsy, nice Christians who just don't believe the Bible. And so don't believe that there's an eternal perdition and who are offended at the very idea. We are affirming God's righteous justice in hell, that fiery pit where the smoke will go up and the saints will sing hallelujah, Revelation 19.3. The saints will sing, and they'll sing hallelujah today if they are saints, if they get it. We recognize that many of today's sinners, think of Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted the church, who oversaw the murder. It was, a, it was a lynch action. It was a mob scene. Stephen, he wasn't tried by any, not even by Pilate. He was just dragged out and murdered. And Saul was overseeing it. And Stephen prayed for him. And all the others he prayed for forgiveness of them. But, you know, we need to recognize that many of today's sinners really are tomorrow's saints. When you meet them at the gates of heaven, you don't want to have to say, I'm sorry I prayed that you'd go to hell. You know. So, as to our personal enemies, those who hate us and persecute us, verse 44, those who hate us and persecute us, we must love them. We must love them truly. Jesus does not say we must approve of them. He does not say we must help them. Okay. He doesn't even say we should allow them to commit crimes. He doesn't say that we must be fond of them. He doesn't say any of those things. Okay. But we are to exercise genuine love for them. I say to you, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We are to exercise genuine love. What kind of love? Well, first of all, the love of what the theologians call the love of benevolence. B-E-N-E-V-O-L-E-N-C-E. It means volo, voluntary, means uh, willful, 
bene, bene volens means goodwill. The love of wishing well, okay, of desiring the benefit even of our enemies. How do you, how do, you do that? Jesus says in verse 44, bless them. The word bless means to speak well. Did you ever notice how funny that is? The Bible talks about us blessing God, about God blessing us. It's an interesting uh, thing. To bless means to speak well. We are to, we are to bless our enemies. Not, we are to speak well, not of them, but for them. And to them. And we are to pray for them. That's really speaking well for them. When we plead, as Jesus pleaded on the cross, forgive them. They know not what they do. Okay. The love of benevolence, the love of desiring the good of our enemies, that's one form of love. The other form of love that the Bible makes clear to us, and Jesus makes clear right in this very verse, as a matter of fact, is in addition to the love of benevolence or goodwill, the love of beneficence. So B-E-N-E-F-I-C-E-N-C-E, and it means to do good. Okay. To the benevolence means to will or desire the good, and beneficence means to do good, which is precisely what Jesus says in verse 44. Not only bless them, okay, but do good to them. And then he goes on in verse 45, okay, and he says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's saying, do good to your enemies because God does good to his enemies. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. If Christ exercised the law of tallying against us, we'd all be lost. But God does good to his enemies, not only to his, to his elect enemies, but he sends his rain and his sunshine, Jesus says, on the good and the evil. That means the elect and the reprobate. God knows who the reprobate are, you know. God could make it so that it never rains on the reprobate. He could make it so that the only people who get COVID are the reprobate. He could do that, but he doesn't. And it's important. It's important that he doesn't, and it's important that we understand why. And the reason is because he exercises what we call common grace. Not saving grace. Saving grace is much more. But God does have a common grace, a common love, a common benevolence, and a common beneficence. Okay? Uh, Desiring good and a doing good in spite of the unworthiness, not only of the elect, but of the reprobate. Okay. We also, we're just as unworthy as the reprobate are, you know. The reprobate aren't going to hell because they were worse than us, which is to say because we were better than them. We're, 
we're going to heaven because Jesus died for us. True, our lives have to mirror that. But that's, we're not going to heaven because on the, on the, on the merit, on, on the basis of, of our sanctification, of our godliness. We're going to heaven because we were justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. So if God has loved those whom he has reprobated, how could we do less? How could we ever do less? And so in verses 46 to 48, okay, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? This is a tiny footnote. This gospel, these words of Jesus were recorded by a tax collector who wasn't afraid to say so. Christians, professing Christians, can have a tendency to be offended when somebody preaches or points out their sins. You don't want to do that. You don't want to do that, you know. If we're to be true children of God, Jesus is saying, okay, we've got to seek to act like our Father. We have to show his image. We have to be chips off the old block in that sense, if you don't mind. We have to strive to practice the kind of love that God practices. Does it take grace? Oh, of course, it takes grace. Thirdly and lastly, and I promise you shortly, I want you to notice that perfect love is long-suffering. It is extended even to our enemies, and thirdly and lastly, it will be eternally rewarded. Look at verse 46 again. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Okay. Some people get the idea that saved by grace means that works have nothing to do with it, but works have everything to do with it, okay? Every good work, imagine, every good work, as imperfect as they are, those are Isaiah's filthy rags. Remember, those are the good works. Those are the righteousnesses. Those aren't the bad works. I, I can't imagine what words Isaiah would have used for them. Okay? Every good work, as imperfect as they are, will be rewarded in heaven. You have Jesus' word for it, and you will again in the next chapter. It's going to be an issue uh, before us. Okay? Every cup of cold water, every good thing do good, Jesus says, that you have done for Jesus' sake, not for your own sake, not so you get a client, or not so that you make a little bit more money, whatever it is, but for Jesus' sake. With, with long-suffering, even towards your enemies, okay? Everything will be rewarded, okay? If a cup of cold water is going to be rewarded, how much more if we love sacrificially, if we love those who hate us and misuse us for Jesus' sake, you see? These are not rewards of merit. We can, we, we can always thank St. Augustine for this brilliant these are not rewards of merit. That was the mistake of the Roman church. That's where they became a non-Christian church in the Council of Trent when they used the word merit. Okay, we merit a whole bunch of things and ultimately we merit heaven, they say. 
That's when they left the Christian church. We merit nothing but hell. But God, by grace, gives us heaven, and he rewards every imperfect, okay, miserable, you might say, good work, but it's a reward not of merit, not because it's worth it, but it's a reward of grace. It's not because of who we are and who, what we have done, but because of who he is. It's like that parent that gets the, the little kindergartner, brings home this picture of a horse, which you can't tell from a house, but you pin it on the refrigerator anyway. And you, okay, that's wonderful. And that parent rewards that child, not because of the quality of what the child has done, but because of the quality of who the parent is. That's how God rewards. Rewards of grace, not rewards of merit. Okay. They're given not because of our goodness, but in spite of our weakness. Okay. So we think about that then. If God has given his son for us, how unimaginably wonderful must all of those rewards of grace be for those who have striven to lead the godly life on earth. We're really radically called by Jesus here to be very much heavenly minded. And that's what that 37th Psalm is about. I encourage you to look at it again this afternoon. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much for all the mercy and the grace that you have so abundantly and richly and and continuously poured out upon us. Oh, Father, how we pray for one another that you would have mercy on us all. We pray even for our enemies, dear Father, that in your patience and in your love, you might be pleased to convert a multitude to yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.